I want to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5. Continue our series in the book of James this morning. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. I'll read our text and then we'll pray together. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. (coughs) Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. (coughs) Sorry if my allergies make me cough today. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift it is that no matter what's going on around us, we have a clear revelation from you. You've told us what is good. You've told us what is true. You've told us who we are, and you've told us of yourself, your power and your love, your righteousness and your mercy. God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word and that you would strengthen our faith, that you would shape us, guide us in the direction that we must go, conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. This really is amazing timing to be reading this text. I think you guys are here today because you believe that God's word is always true and that it's always relevant, but there's sometimes in life where I think we sort of experience that. We see exactly how relevant and necessary God's word is because of what's going on around us. We live in a time where this week there is a virus that is disrupting life around the globe. We're meeting during a week where injustice and violence and chaos seems to be ramping up all around us, a time where our government seems often inept, and society itself is increasingly polarized. We're tearing apart at the seams. And in a time like this, we need theology. We need truth. We need perspective. And we find that truth that we so desperately need in God's word. As you see in our text this morning, James understands that Jesus is coming back. And this truth of the return of Christ is supposed to affect how we live today. And we need this reminder. When we're faced with opposition, when we're faced with uncertainty, when we're faced with difficulties of various times, it's very easy, isn't it, for us to grow frustrated or to become discouraged. But a biblically grounded faith in the return of Christ This truth can fortify your soul, fortify my soul to endure. God has given us in his word the hope that we need to face any trial. And that hope is found in the reality that Jesus is coming back. Christ will return. If you noticed as we read the text, there's four times that James mentions the word patience. If you look, he he says this word patience twice 
in verse 7, once in verse 8, once in verse 10. And three times he mentions the return of Christ in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. And the connection between these two things is clear. It's plain. Faith in the return of Christ strengthens us to patiently endure. I want to share with you this morning three truths regarding the patient endurance that God desires to see in us. And the first is this. Patience in the face of adversity grows from the right perspective. If you're going to be patient, if you're going to face all the things going on around us, the things in your life individually, the things in our experience locally, the things going on globally, if you're going to face that adversity with patience, you need the right perspective. Verse 7 through 8, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What James is doing here is giving us a highly practical eschatology. It's a big word, eschatology. It simply means our our understanding about the end times, the return of Christ, what's coming in the future. And a lot of people say, you know what, everybody disagrees about that, it's confusing, I'm just going to sort of ignore that area of doctrine. But James shows us that our belief in the return of Christ is not only doctrinally essential, but it's also highly and personally relevant. What you believe about the future shapes how you live in the present. This perspective, this this awareness of the future and what is to come has been evident in every chapter so far of this book. James always has the finish line. He always has the future in view. In chapter 1, verse 12, he writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Listen, my brothers, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? He's always looking forward. He's looking ahead to the future. Chapter 3, verse 1, this is instructive. He says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James has the future in view. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. And, And that salvation and that destruction is eschatological. It's talking about the day of the Lord when Christ returns to finally rescue and exalt his people, to raise us up to joy, but also to judge his enemies. And here in chapter 5, this focus on the return of Christ appears as well. Maybe you've never thought about James as being an eschatological book, but I believe that it is. As we saw last week in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5, James announces divine retribution is coming for the unjust. A highly relevant text considering what we see going on in our society around us today. He says that they are to weep and howl for miseries that are coming upon them. He refers to the last days. He talks about it being the day of slaughter. This announcement of judgment is meant to instill fear in the hearts of the wicked. It's not good news, the return of Christ. is not good news for those who walk in rebellion against Jesus. But what does the return of Christ mean for the faithful? What does it mean for believers? What does it have for us today? Verse 7 contains a very important linking word. He says, be patient, therefore, therefore. 
For believers, this therefore means that because Jesus is coming back, we can be patient. The wicked, the rebellious are to beware of the judgment is coming. But James now pivots. He's no longer speaking to them. He's now speaking to us. He's speaking to those who are oppressed. He's speaking to those who may be suffering, to those who mourn, to those who lament at everything that we see going on around us. While the wicked are told to weep and howl, we are called to be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers. And he repeats it in verse 8. You also be patient. Double emphasis on this command. What does it mean to be patient? What is, it that, what is this command that we are to obey today? Well, it doesn't mean that we tolerate wickedness. That's not what James is calling for. It doesn't mean that we forsake all zeal for Christ and for his glory. He's not calling us to be passive. Patience is not passive. No, this idea of patience here as the idea of remaining in the fight, bearing up underneath what it is that we are facing, not giving up. Not tapping out, not freaking out. It's a settled commitment. And as such, this call to patience is a call to action. We're to embrace this resolve to endure. That is the patience that James calls us to. And why are we to be patient? The reason's clear. The coming of the Lord, verse 8, is at hand. Be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And we are to be patient until he comes. Jesus is coming back to make things right, and that's why we don't lose heart. And it's important that we find our comfort, that we find our courage in this truth and not other truths, because there's not another truth that can sustain this kind of patience. We're not called to be patient because we think we can change the world. We're not called to endure because we have hope that our governmental authorities are going to somehow make things better. No, the only thing that is strong enough, the only foundation that is firm enough for you to build your patience and your faith and your courage upon is the reality that Jesus is king and Jesus is coming. This is why we don't lose heart. Because injustice and wickedness and rebellion won't last forever. It can't last forever. Because Christ is coming. And we wait until that day. We wait for the appointed time And we wait for the appointed person, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. To illustrate this point, James points us to the farmer. He says this in verse 7. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. I think we all understand how rain works. We all know what farmers are. We're not too far from many farms. But we need to understand in James's context that this idea of the <coughs> excuse me, the early and the late rains would have been really central to their society. There were some places that depended on other sources of water to keep their agrarian society going. So for instance, in Egypt, they depended on the seasonal flooding of the Nile River and irrigation ditches that they could dig. You know, that was their source of water. But in Israel, they depended on seasonal rains. It's a very different situation. In Israel, there were two rainy, season, rainy seasons, one in the fall, one in the spring. So they needed that initial moisture so that the seed could germinate, and they needed the later moisture in order for it to be able to mature so that they could harvest. If you didn't get rain, you didn't get a harvest. And if you didn't get a harvest, it would have meant a massive 
famine that would have brought suffering and death and hardship for the population. So they depended on these rains. And there was no choice for the farmer but to wait and hope that the rain came. And if you're a farmer, you know that you can't make rain happen. And at the same time, you can't stop rain from happening. It's completely out of our hands. Rain is God's prerogative. So the farmer is an example of waiting on God, depending on God, trusting in God. And think about this. If you're a farmer, you don't plant seed unless you think it's going to rain. It's an act of faith for the farmer to plant. And then it's an act of faith for the, for the farmer to wait and to hope that God will send the rain. This later rain and early rain, these seasonal rains, are often mentioned in the Old Testament. And it's interesting that every occurrence of early and late rains in the Old Testament is found in a context that's always affirming God's faithfulness. Deuteronomy 11, Jeremiah 5, Hosea 6, Joel 2, Zechariah 10. We don't have time to go there. But all of these passages speak of these early and later rains in connection with the faithfulness of God, connecting it with the fulfillment of His promises. And James's readers, as Jewish Christians, this would have been a familiar concept to them. They would have picked up on this. And they understood that James is saying, we're not just waiting in general for some unspecified help. We're waiting on God to keep specific promises. God had promised to provide for his people. That's specific. Just as the farmer waits for the rain, for the fulfillment of specific promises, we too are told to wait on God and trust that he is faithful to do what he promises, specifically that his son will return, that his kingdom will be established, that his enemies will be judged and his people given rest, that all things will be made right and all things will be made new. And James makes clear that this patient waiting, this looking to the promise of God is something that is rooted in the heart. Look in verse eight. He says, you also be patient. What does he say next? Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. We've seen that James's theme in this book is genuine faith. And James has no tolerance for a merely intellectual belief that has no effect on the heart. We must establish our hearts and brace our very souls to endure until Christ returns. And maybe this is speaking to where you are today. Perhaps this need in your heart to be established, to be firm in your faith, at the level of the heart, at the level of the emotions, maybe that's something that's been exposed by everything that's going on with the virus, with our government, whether it's police brutality or anarchy in the streets, whether it's the verbal venom of an election year, there's so much that's going on around us. And maybe that's shaken you up a little bit. Or maybe it's angered you, frustrated you. This is a moment of testing for us. Does the truth that you profess to believe, that Christ is king and he will soon return, does that truth does it grip your heart? Does it actually shape your emotional responses to all the things going on around us? Are you waiting patiently on the Lord? Are you establishing your heart? Or is your heart getting drugged through the roller coaster that our society is on right now? If you believe that Christ is coming back and if this truth has taken root in your heart, then you will be grounded in Christ and you will not be swayed by fear or by frustration, no matter what crumbles and burns around us. James reminds us in verse 8 that the coming of the Lord is at hand. It is at hand. He doesn't want us to think of this as some far-off distant reality, but as an imminent experience. 
This word parousia, the coming, this word that's translated the coming of Christ, is a term of royal visitation. The king is on his way. He has sent his heralds ahead of him to prepare the city to receive their king. And we're supposed to be getting ready. There's nothing left that needs to happen. His return is imminent. He is, according to verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. Jesus often warned that the day of the Lord would come like a thief in the night, that no one knows when it would happen. Matthew chapter 24 and other places. And the impact of this is that we as his disciples are to be ready and to be watchful because his coming will be sudden and unexpected. The author of Hebrews states that the day is drawing near in Hebrews 10, 25. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is at hand. Three times in the book of Revelation, Jesus announces, I am coming soon. John replies, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Scripture tells us all creation groans, longing for his return, but too many Christians are sleepwalking through life, oblivious to the fact that Christ is returning. And disregarding this fact that the king will soon be here, keeps, it, it undermines our faith. It cripples us and does not give us the courage and the strength we need to endure, to persevere, to wait on God in faith patiently. So James gives us this perspective that Christ is coming back. This is the perspective we need to grow in patience as we deal with adversity and opposition. Patience in the face of adversity grows, first of all, from a right perspective. Secondly, patience in the face of adversity is also going to be reflected by our conduct. It will be reflected by our conduct. Verse 9. It almost seems awkward at first until you understand how James connects these things. But he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. So he connects this idea of patience with opposition going on around us with also showing patience to each other. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Have you guys ever been on a, uh, a long road trip where you pack the family in the car and you hit the highway? It all starts off fun and exciting, doesn't it, for the first eight minutes? But what happens after that? What happens when you put people together in a small space? People who love each other, people who enjoy each other, but they're in close proximity for an extended period of time. And then what happens if somebody gets hungry, or people get tired, or you run out of gas, or you get lost? Conflict happens, doesn't it? The kids start hitting each other. The backseat drivers and the front seat drivers start going back and forth. Pressure often leads to tension. And James understands that these believers are facing all sorts of adversity from the outside. And, and what that means is that they are actually in danger of taking out their frustrations on each other. When pressure mounts, we're often tempted to grow impatient with one another's imperfections, with one another's failures, and there's no shortage of those. When we're under stress, we grow intolerant of other people's competing opinions, and our disagreements escalate into interpersonal warfare. So verse 9 commands us not to grumble against one another. You see, grumbling against one another, here's what it reveals. It reveals the absence of a patient heart. Grumbling reveals the absence of a patient heart. Grumbling is that inward groan when you see that certain person, when they do that certain thing again that really bothers you, 
It's that feeling when someone who has sinned against you and you allow that sin to color your attitude towards them. You allow the things about them that bother you to skew your thoughts and your words. James says believers are not only to be patient towards outsiders who oppress them, we're also to be patient towards insiders in the church who may irritate us at times. And again, this is highly applicable now, isn't it? As we deal with the pressures of coronavirus, people are under stress. Some people are afraid. Some people are suspicious. Some people are angry. Some people are dismissive. How do we deal with all those varying opinions, even within the body of Christ? What do we do when people have different opinions on whether we should cooperate with certain governmental restrictions? Should we wear masks or should we not? How do we interact with others in the body who hold these different opinions about how the government should respond or how we as citizens should respond or about how the church should respond? Well, whatever our solution to working through these varying opinions and disagreements, we know we must handle them not with grumbling, but with patience. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. It's interesting and helpful that James doesn't address the specific issues being grumbled about. And that's what makes it so applicable for all times in every place, doesn't it? This is for us today. James just puts the situation in perspective for us. He says, do not grumble so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The same truth that comforts us and keeps us from losing heart when everything's going badly in the world around us also warns us. And make sure you behave rightly towards one another. There's implications here. The return of Christ has ethical implications. Our faith in the return of Christ should result not only in patient endurance, but also humble obedience. You see, not only will Christ bring justice to the wicked, but Jesus is also going to evaluate our lives. Not to determine whether or not we will go to hell or go to heaven. That situation's already been resolved at the cross if you're a believer in Christ. But Christ will evaluate us, judge us, in the sense that he's going to examine our lives to see what precious good works remain after the worthless deeds of the flesh are burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. There's going to be some things in our life that burn up under the white, hot gaze of his holiness. And this truth that Jesus is going to judge believers in this sense should motivate us to forsake our fleshly reactions against other people, to stop grumbling against each other. The power for patience lies in the conviction that the time of judgment is imminent. James says, do not grumble against one another. Just as patience is to be an expression of our faith, on the flip side, this grumbling is really a mark of unbelief. It's unbelief. It was considered unbelief when the children of Israel grumbled in the wilderness. And it's the same for us today. When you or I grumble against the people around us for how they've wronged us, how they've frustrated us, how they may have let us down, we're denying the magnitude of the significance of Christ returning to make all things right. When you grumble against someone, you're in effect saying, I know that Jesus died to free me from the wrath to come, and I know that Jesus is returning to bring his children home. I know that Jesus is going to make all things new, but I'm really struggling with this person right now. Their failures and their shortcomings are so big in my mind that it's eclipsing the sun. Not eclipsing the, that sun, the, the sun that lights and heats our solar system. Eclipsing the sun of God. 
James says that this kind of unbelief needs to be purged from among us. It's unbelief. It's the opposite of faith. Perhaps some of you could be called professional grumblers. For some of us, grumbling, complaining, it's almost like a hobby. We complain about the weather, complain about school, we complain about traffic, complain about politics, we complain about a family member, a spouse, or children, complain about your job, complain about health, complain about our neighbors, complain about our churches, and so on and so on. But this text calls us to repent of that kind of unbelief. We need a faith that looks to Christ's return, a faith that produces patience, not only enduring opposition, not only enduring the adversity of living in a broken and fallen world, but the kind of faith that also helps us to be patient with one another, that has perspective, that enables us to work through the things that bother us with other people. Patience in the face of adversity is going to be reflected by our conduct. It really cuts to the heart, doesn't it? It's convicting. How can I grumble against someone else when the judge is standing at the door? There's a healthy fear of God that should control our conduct. That's part of what genuine faith is. And it results in patience, not just with circumstances, but patience with people. So patience in the face of adversity, first, grows from a right perspective. Secondly, patience in the face of adversity is going to be reflected by our conduct And then lastly, patience in the face of adversity rests in the character of God. It rests in the character of God. Look in verse 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In order to fortify these brothers for the future, James reminds them of the past. He points their attention, first of all, to the prophets. The prophets who many times suffered unjustly in the centuries before them. We know from Hebrews 11 that the prophets of God often experienced intense opposition and adversity. Hebrews 11, 36-38 says that they suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. James holds up the example of these prophets as honorable and as specifically here, blessed. It says, we consider them blessed, verse 11, who remained steadfast. So here's the question, blessed by who? Blessed by men? Obviously not. It was men who were cutting them in half. They were blessed by God. God is the source of this blessing. How could they endure such hardship and suffering? How could they remain steadfast? They knew the character of God, and they were trusting in and reaching for his blessing, regardless of what man might do to them. And these prophets who suffered before are not only an example, they're also an encouragement to us because we know that we too will experience God's blessing like them if we patiently endure. Again, James 1.12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Jesus says the same in Matthew 5. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James says, we know the story of the prophets. We know that they are blessed even though they were persecuted. We take comfort in that. Follow their example. Job is also held up as an example of steadfastness in verse 11. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. While Job did struggle to remain patient, while he did question God for allowing tragedy in his life, he never cursed God and gave up, even though his wife wanted him to. He stuck it out. Questions and emotions and doubts and all, James or uh, Job rather, endured. He never stopped clinging to God. And in the end, God blessed him above and beyond his previous state. And in this familiar story, James reminds us, we have seen God's purpose. Look in verse 11. You've seen the purpose of the Lord in the story of Job. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God proved that. And we can be confident that he will be compassionate and merciful to us as well. God is faithful. This is the God focused perspective we need in order to follow these examples. If you're going to be like the the prophets and like Job, we need this perspective. The character of the Lord, his compassion, his faithfulness, his mercy, that's the source of our comfort and hope. And it's not just the story of Job where we see this faithfulness, is it? We can see it on every page of scripture. We can reflect back on God's faithfulness in our own lives, but we see God's purposes fulfilled most poignantly and most powerfully at the cross, even in the face of great suffering, even in the case of gross injustice, wickedness, corruption, and evil, we see God's purpose fulfilled. The cross proves God's compassion and mercy beyond the shadow of a doubt as he reaches down to sinners like us. God allowed the self-righteous Pharisees and the cruel pagan Romans to crucify Jesus. Why? So that his compassion and his mercy could be given to all the world. Just because pain and tragedy happens in our life, it does not mean that God is not good. It does not mean that God is not in control. And we need to remember that. The cross is the ultimate assurance of this truth. And for the believer, the cross, because of the cross, suffering, we know that suffering is never the final chapter of our story. Our life will include suffering. It will include hardship. It will include adversity and difficulty. But just as God raised Jesus up from the dead, we too await a glorious future at the end of this often difficult life. So take this exhortation of James to heart. Rest in the character of God. We've seen his purpose. We've seen his compassion. We've seen his mercy. So we can endure. We rest in his character knowing that he's good, he's in control, and he's proven his love for us. I don't know if any of you here today are feeling ready to quit. If you're feeling it increasingly difficult to not lash out at others, but let me urge you to not deny the hope of Christ's return by allowing our attitudes and our actions to to demonstrate this unbelief. The good news today is that God forgives impatience God forgives grumbling. God forgives unbelief. 
If you feel his spirit convicting you today, receive his grace this morning by faith. Confess your sin. Confess your unbelief. Confess your weakness. Confess your need. And experience his mercy. If you feel like this patience is too much for God to ask, remember this, that the fruit of the spirit includes faith and patience. That's evidence of God working in us. God gives to us through his spirit what he expects from us. And this, my friend, is grace. That's what grace is. That God supplies what he demands. So entrust your soul to him. Depend on him to produce this fruit in you. You will not achieve patience. You will not endure simply by gritting your teeth and trying harder. You need divine power. You need God's merciful provision. You need his spirit. You need his grace. So if you see your need for those things today, ask for it and receive it by faith. Let's look to the reality of Christ's return today. Let's ask God to help us establish our hearts. Let's consider the farmer who waits for the rain. Let's remember the prophets who endured persecution. Let's remember Job who faced suffering without denying God. May we take these examples of faith to heart. And pray that God would enable us to endure and to remain steadfast as we wait for Christ's return. God, thank you for this reminder of the precious truth that you have not left us to ourselves here on this earth. We are not alone now. And we know that we will not be without a Messiah when Jesus returns. We know that Jesus will be established as king over all. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. He will establish righteousness and justice forever. Lord, we look forward to that day and we pray with the Apostle John, Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. Our world needs you. We need you. There is so much wickedness and evil, pain and heartache. It's beyond our ability to even understand. And we can't cry enough tears to properly lament everything that's wrong in this world. But God, we know that you are good. We know that you see every bit of it. And you will make all things right, and you will make all things new. And Lord, if that truth is not enough for any who are gathered here today, I pray that you would increase their faith, that they would find solace and comfort and confidence in the truth that we have a supreme Savior who is coming. He is coming. Lord, strengthen us to endure. Grant us patience, patience towards our circumstances, patience towards outsiders, patience with each other. I pray that you would forgive us for our tendency to grumble against one another. Lord, give us a spirit of grace and humility and patience. Give us the perspective we need to walk rightly in this day and age. And Lord, we thank you that though we are imperfect, though we are weak, though we are sinful, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to rescue and redeem us, to make us new, and to give us hope of eternal life to come. We praise you and thank you for that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.